You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Hello, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Elise Schaefer. This week, I appeared on Remote Ruby to talk about taking over the Ruby on Rails podcast, as well as some ideas I have about state machines and the Ruby language in general. This was a fun conversation. It was great getting to talk with Jason and Chris, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, I'm excited for this episode because, as you might have recently learned, the Ruby on Rails podcast has passed the baton. Brittany Martin, who was the Ruby on Rails podcast host and a really good friend to all of us here at Remote Ruby, decided to enter a new step of her life. And today we have the person taking the baton from her. So I would like to welcome Elise Schaefer to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, <laughs> really grateful that you joined us today. Elise, she actually reached out to us. I just thought that was really cool because one thing that's really cool about Ruby podcasting is historically, I mean, it hasn't felt like us against someone else. It's always just been like we, a bunch of people with different takes lifting up the same community. So cool to keep that going. Excited to get to know you. And yeah. along those lines, would love to maybe give you a moment to introduce yourself and yeah, maybe just kind of how you got into Ruby and uh, into hosting the Ruby on Rails podcast. Sure. So my name is Lee Schaefer. I've been doing software development professionally since 2010. I've been using Ruby for pretty much that entire time. I started out as kind of working in like a government consulting type deal. And the work that I was doing was kind of like application development for government agencies, right? To do like permit tracking and stuff like that. Not super complicated stuff, but it's like governed by a big regulations. And so the regulations make it more complicated than maybe it needs to be. But that's where I learned Ruby. That's where I learned Ruby and I learned Rails and I sort of fell in love with it. I have a traditional computer science background. So I grew up with computers. And so that, that part of my story is kind of boring. It's the route that you know, you would assume someone has. So that part of it's a little bit boring. But I fell in love with Ruby. The first language that I learned where I felt like I could guess method signatures, I could just guess them. And I'd be right about 80 or 90% of the time. And when I was wrong, I could like change the argument order and that would probably be right. So that's kind of my, my career. I've worked in a lot of different industries. I've worked in consumer electronics. I've worked in billing. I've worked in cybersecurity, that kind of stuff across the gamut a little bit. So that's like kind of the story of my career trajectory. And I'm happy to dive into any of that. That's like interesting. The story of taking over the podcast is really kind of serendipitous. And it's sort of like I had helped to organize a panel at RubyConf Mini last year. And uh, that had kind of introduced me to some people. And so Brittany was there for that panel and she saw that panel. And then when she was looking for a new host, I believe Gemma had maybe mentioned my name. But after that panel, I had stepped kind of not on purpose, but I'd sort of stepped back from the community a little bit. At the time, I was like going to take a break and then I became a manager and sort of things happened. So at the time that Brittany reached out, I was sort of looking for a way to kind of get back into the community and do something for the community. And it's sort of a situation of like the universe just drops something that you've been looking for on your lap. And that 
is sort of how it happened. Brittany reached out. She said, if you're interested in this, like, let's set up a time to chat. We set up a time. We got on a call and I was super excited about doing it. If there's a community that is probably going to be the most fun to interview people, it's probably the Ruby community. I feel like there's a lot of cool people who are working on cool things and who have good stories. And yeah. And then so we had a couple conversations. I met kind of the other people involved in the show. We went on from there. We organized the episode where she kind of handed over the baton to me. And then I, I took over and I've been running with it since for the last few episodes. That's awesome. How has taking over been? Is this your first like podcast hosting experience? Sort of. So I did a limited run podcast thing for a conference that I had been. So when I, was, when I lived in Pittsburgh, there was an organization there called Pittsburgh Code and Supply. And they organized a conference called Abstractions. And as part of that, at the time, I was like involved in Code and Supply because I lived in Pittsburgh. And in the lead up to that conference, we did some interviews with people who were going to be speaking, sort of to do like promo for it on YouTube. So I did a couple of those episodes where I did those interviews. And that was like sort of podcast-like, but it wasn't like a long-term situation. It was like, I don't know, six or seven episodes or something. But this is the first time that I've taken on sort of a full-time podcast situation. Yeah. How's the adjustment been? Pretty good. I think one of the nice things is that Brittany kind of had a lot of things figured out. So I, I sort of feel like I picked it up and I'm just rolling with it. I think there are some things that are, are still learning adjustments, but I feel like every episode I get more comfortable behind the mic. I get more fluid in the transitions and talking with people. And I feel like it's coming more naturally every time I record, which is good. I think organization-wise, I'm using... like I've made some adjustments to the template and the script and stuff just to sort of match my style a little bit better. But it's been easier than I thought it would be, to be honest. I was like a little bit more scared and it turned out to be very kind of mostly good. Like Once you actually start recording and you've done it a couple of times, you just sort of fall into a flow, I feel like. So it's been, it's been easier than I thought it would be, for sure. Yeah, that's good. We did it the hard way with no plans, no nothing, no editing. We just like... No scripts, no. And, (laughs) but I think we've over time ended up with those same sort of systems that really make it kind of, yeah, we sit down, we jump on Zoom, we talk a little bit ahead of time, and then you know how to kind of guide the conversation when like one topic's over, it's time to like switch things or whatever. And those are like great if you've got the systems are, or like, here's a bunch of gotchas that you wouldn't expect until you're in the middle of recording an episode and you probably had the, the shortcut on all that, which is good. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, it's really cool to see like a podcast like that doesn't die. And it has sort of this process of transitioning hosts where it's like, no one wants this to go away, but everybody has different phases of their lives. So it's your turn now, which is such a cool, like, thing because I have a feeling most podcasts never really make it to that next step if one of the core people like steps out. So yeah, kind of feels like, oh, I'm I'm the shepherd of the podcast right now. You know, like Brittany was the shepherd of it before and she really revived it. I mean, the podcast was pretty much dead when she took it over, right? So I feel a certain amount of like responsibility to that and maintaining the audience. But I also know that like, you know, at some point in the future, there's going to come a time when it's like time for me to pass the baton to someone else and keeping that in mind too, that it's like, it's more of a, of a community institution than like even like my institution, 
me taking over the podcast. Like I have like my own style for how I do it, but like, I think that's like important to keep in mind too. And I try to try to keep that at the forefront. I really like that perspective on it. It has carried on for so many years. It's got a legacy. Legacy. Yeah. 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 It's cool, but it makes me think about like open source projects that you maintain or our podcast or I don't know, anything really. It's like, how do you make something that sustains the individual who like might have pioneered it, but this is important for the community. And when core podcasts disappear in a community, that's not a good sign for people who are like just joining and looking for jobs and, you know, whatever. And it's amazing to see this, you know, transition, which is kind of rare, it feels like, but also like very welcomed. I just wanted to, I feel like it was just such a good thing that happened. So I would be interested in jumping back a little bit because you mentioned like you were doing government work when you learned Ruby. And then you went on to mention like consumer electronics and cybersecurity and things like that. And I'm interested to know if you were using Ruby in any of those roles. Yes. I mean, Ruby has been kind of a through line throughout my career, actually. I mean, I've done some like tangential stuff off of it. I think consumer electronics is maybe one that's like a little bit, you'd be like, oh, well, what would you use Ruby for? So in that one, it's mostly was embedded C. So it's like writing C on a microcontroller. But when you're doing kind of electronics manufacturing, you have to test all of the chips that are printed. You have to test like the circuit boards and everything. So those test fixtures, you build like a test fixture clamps onto the board and has connections, that is to talk to a computer. All of the stuff on the computer that was doing like all of the like testing of those boards and then printing reports on like defect rates and all of that stuff, that stuff was all written in Ruby on like a regular laptop using just like Ruby GTK or whatever. So that was like interesting and cool. And like, I think a lot of people think of Ruby and the first thing they think of is Rails, but Ruby is useful for so many things. I think all it takes is just to see it in a different light and that can help you understand the language better and understand your tools better. And like, yeah. So, and that's true of of the other roles that I've had too. When I was working in, this is my most recent role was with a cybersecurity firm and they build a platform for security for other businesses. So you can use them to be your security provider and they have a platform that ingests from a bunch of data from sensors on like laptops and stuff. And then they analyze that data. All of that stuff was written. Uh, well, most of it was written in Ruby. Then a Rails front end, obviously. I think it's a wide gamut of things you can do with Ruby. This episode is brought to you by Honey Badger. Monitoring, like web development, can be complicated. There are tons of tools and techniques, but you just want to know that your app is up and running and that your customers are happy. When your customers encounter a problem, you need clear, actionable intelligence, not walls of charts and reams of logs to tail. That's why we built Honey Badger, the monitoring tool we have always wanted. A tool that's where you need it, when you need it, and it gets out of your way when you don't, so you keep shipping. With Honey Badger, you can know when critical errors occur and which customers are affected. You can respond instantly when your systems go down. You can improve the health of your systems over time. And of course, fix problems before your customers can report them. Honey Badger is the application health monitoring tool built for you, the developer who cares about a quality product and happy customers. Start monitoring today at honeybadger.io. Honey Badger is free for small teams and setup takes as little as five minutes. Once again, that is honeybadger.io. Link is in the show notes. 
I remember when I was getting into Ruby in college, I loved application security stuff and was going to go into security. But then I realized like to be really good at app security, you really need to know how to write applications so you can figure out, you know, where things go wrong. But at the time, like I didn't know anything about Ruby except for like Metasploit was written in Ruby. And like it was the maybe still is, I don't know, one of the biggest projects in Ruby, like period. And that's used everywhere in security testing and stuff. So it's kind of the testament to like the Ruby language is like one designed for humans first, which is why I love Ruby because it's like you can get an idea from your head. You're thinking in, in the words that you speak, you're not thinking in binary. So you can translate an idea into code a lot faster than having to like deal with the syntax of C++ and memory allocation and all these other things, especially with things like active support. A lot of times you're just writing English that happens to read just like your thoughts would read, or if you were to write it out in like a spec sheet or something. I think that's the magic that I really like about Ruby. Like it can apply to anything. Yeah. One of the things that's that's interesting that you were talking about just sparked a a thought, which is even like it being built for developer happiness is such an important part. Like even parts of the syntax that seem weird when you're coming from another language, like the dot each do, right? That seems very weird if you're used to like 4x in set. Yeah, or i equals zero plus plus. Right, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But like, to me, that makes so much sense. It makes so much more sense to say, here's an array, like each item in the array do this thing, right? That makes so much more sense to me. Yeah. My first time I saw like 100 dot times do this. And I was like, yeah. oh my God. Like it just yeah. reads like English. It's, it's amazing. Get the feel of like, it's almost like magic, right? Where it works and you're like, I didn't expect that to work, but maybe I should have expected it to work because like, yeah, that's like what I meant, right? Like, Yeah, that's uh, such a wild thing. You'll never experience that in almost any other language. Because like you said earlier, you can be writing code and you're like, surely there's not a whatever helper or method or something. And then you're like, but I'm going to try. And it's like, hey, this returned a range of all the, the days in the month. That's nuts that someone already thought of this and built it. And I can just like skip all of that logic of like, I'm building a calendar and I need to know the current day and then go back to the beginning of the month, which might be any day of the week. And then maybe you need to still go to the beginning of the week because the beginning of the month is on Friday and you got to render a calendar that's actually like a rectangle. And like those little things are like super easy in Ruby often. And you're like, what? This is crazy. So yeah, I definitely can relate to that, which kind of, I feel like we were talking before this episode kind of leads us into talking about state machines because we were talking about ideas to talk about on this episode and started going down the rabbit hole of like state machine gems don't quite have the right feel yet. I feel like I think you definitely Uh, have a lot to say on this. (laughs) Yeah, this is a this is a bugbear for me. I'll take it in sort of two parts. The first one is state machines and sort of an argument to convince listeners and everyone in the industry that they should use a state machine. State machines are, I think, they come off as a little complicated because when you think about it, you're like, what is a state machine? Like, what does that mean to be a state machine? The way to think about it is 
anything that can exist in a specific state and then transitions between states, right? That's most web apps. <laughs> like that's, that's most apps that we are building in this context have that sort of system. You can think about like ticket tracking, e-commerce order flow, subscriptions management, all of them have this sort of feel. And I think it's important to sort of recognize that. But I've also worked in apps that obviously should have been state machines, but were just like a bunch of guard clauses on every method that checks the state. And that feels very cumbersome. But if you don't have a good state machine gem or some sort of library to make it work, or you don't know about state machines, then that's sort of part of the issue. So sort of leads you to look at the state machine gems that exist. And I think there's state machines, state machines, workflow was one of them. There's like a few. It wasn't there a AASM or something A-A-S-M. like that? AASM. Access yeah. state machine. Yeah, yeah. access state machine. Yeah, yeah um, we use workflow course. at Podia like heavily. So very yeah. familiar. Yeah, and I've used access state machine and I've used the state machines gem, I think, are the two that I've used. But most of them work in sort of a similar way, which is they define a bunch of methods that take blocks that then let you set specific states and then set transitions for which transitions are valid with a block that determines what happens on that state transition, right? So that's sort of like the idea. This can actually be fine for most apps. The problem is, is that if you have an an app that has like a dozen states or something, these state machines can get very large. And if they're all on the same model, then that model can be thousands of lines of code. And then that becomes like a nightmare to keep track of. And it also means that when editing that class, you sort of have to think about like, sort of one of the benefits of state machines is that when you're working in them, you only have to think about the states that you were looking for the transition from, right? Like that's kind of one of the benefits of them. But if all this code is like in the same class and it's all kind of mixed together, then you still have to sort of hold the whole thing in your head, which is not great. So yeah, so this is like a thing that I'm very interested in like playing around with and experimenting with kind of on my own and trying to see if I can brainstorm some better approaches or better ways at like modeling state machines in an inner rails in an active record backed app. So I'd, I'd love to pick your brains on what your experience has been. For one, it's sort of like, you know, when you're reading that code, if you've never edited it before and you see all the the guard clauses, like you were saying, like you have to reverse engineer the state machine that's yeah. not strictly defined anywhere, which can be incredibly hard to wrap your head around. And you may never wrap your head around it. And chances are you will end up with transitions that don't end up in the right state or whatever. That stuff can easily happen when you don't have it like defined anywhere. So yeah, I think before the episode, you said something like, if you've got a model that has state or status as a column on it, you should be using a state machine. I thought yeah. that was really good. You know, it's a little bit of a snarky kind of comment, but yeah, I, I that's one thing that I believe. I think if you see state in your database column, that is a clear sign, state or status, it's a clear sign that what you have is a state machine that's just being hidden. If you're not currently using a state machine gem or some some sort of state machine for it, that's a very, very clear sign. And I think like it would make your code more maintainable, easier to understand, easier to reason about. It has so many benefits to modeling it that way. That's the number one way to know that it's a state machine. I'm sure that there are other ways that you could pull out hidden state machines, but usually yeah. when I see state on a model and I don't see state machine, I like know I'm, I'm in for a hard debugging time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or anytime an enum is used, that's a yeah. good sign that like mm-hmm. 
you know that you're storing states, but having a clear definition of the state has these transitions to these others, because the enums are literally like, here's zero, it's this name, it's one is this name, two is this name, and there's no context around it, which is where the value of the state machines really comes into play. The states themselves are only a sort of a required necessity, but it's really the transitions or the key piece. These are the options you have from here. And that's what you need to care about. It also makes them easier to test too, because you Mm. know what the discrete states are. Another thing I find myself implicitly a lot is timestamps a state like oh yeah like a published ad or something yeah like we I find myself relying on well this timestamp is present that means it's in this state and that's often assigned to me like oh well I can still track those timestamps and have a state like a state machine that pushes the timestamps it's just part of its own workflow that's a very good point yeah and and even something as simple as yeah, you've got a draft post that needs to be published, but a side effect of publishing is we need to send out notifications or do something like that. It's not even state itself. It's like sort of a callback of this transition. This yeah. move from these two states needs to do some additional work, not just update the column or whatever. And probably anytime you find those methods that are like, hey, we're going from A to B, and this stuff happens along the way. There you go. Could be the tiniest state machine. Could be two different states, but still yeah. important. Those transitions are like the value of a state machine is codifying the behavior that happens on the transition. That is the value in it. That's like all the power that you get out of it and being able to, to like reason about that in a pragmatic way. It's such a game changer for development, I think. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Scout APM. Scout APM is a leading Ruby on Rails application performance monitoring tool that helps you identify and solve performance abnormalities faster. As a tool built for developers by developers, Scout makes it easy to get your APM set up and delivering insights in less than four minutes. Learn more at scoutapm.com. The nuances creep up really fast where you have Using that simple example of going a blog post goes from draft to published. As that step happens, we send notifications. But that's not reality. Reality is you'll publish the blog post and then someone's like, oh, shoot, we published it a week early. We need to go back to draft or something like that. And then we're like, next time, maybe we don't want to send notifications. So there's actually an extra transition in there that skips notifications or something and you have to keep that in mind but if you don't use a state machine you can easily like miss Mm -hmm. those extra transitions or or maybe it's another state is missing you you discover like maybe the notification step is this happens then immediately once that's done triggers the published state or something and it's like we just skipped that intermediate state and we probably should introduce a formal thing for it i feel like that's another thing people often don't model well enough or something. And one of the things that I I think is interesting in what you were saying there is you're not using a state machine and you're trying to model all this stuff. And now you've got all these hidden edge cases that you probably don't know about. So if you try to model a state machine on top of it, you have to kind of deal with those edge cases because in the draft publish one, it's maybe not that big of a deal to just like break those edge cases and not care. 
But if it's something like subscriptions management, where you've got customers who are depending on some behavior that you didn't know you had codified, like now to model the state machine, you've got to like figure out how to do that. That can be very challenging if you didn't start with a state machine to begin with, or very early on decide that it should have been a state machine. Do you have any advice on how to break an existing system down into a state machine if somebody is like, you know what, you got a really good point. Didn't use one, but I should be. This is like a difficult one. It's very difficult to piecemeal it, right? Like you have to eat the whole frog at once, basically. My advice would be to look at some of the Ruby, the current Ruby state machines. I think depending on what you're doing, depending on how many states you have, they may be cumbersome or might be daunting. But I would look at some of the state machine gems. I know we mentioned Workflow and Asm or Asm. As as, <laughs> there you go. I would look at those. Also think this is a use case for single table inheritance too. Like I think single table inheritance can, mm. can solve some of these problems. That's actually one of the things that I sort of want to do some more exploration on because there's a part of me that likes the idea of having like a draft post dot publish that transitions it to published post or whatever that sets the state appropriately. There's a part of me that likes the idea of that, but without seeing it in something real, I don't know if that would be good or bad, actually. I don't know if it would become too unmaintainable to have like too many different objects, but yeah. It's an interesting idea because earlier when you were saying like you see people handling state as like a bunch of guard clauses, mm -hmm. I was actually thinking, oh, typically when I'm trying to avoid a bunch of conditional logic based on that, it's usually like with STI because I just like subclass and then each thing is its own individual representation. Yeah. 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 And that's maybe one of those where it's like, depends on the complexity of your state machine. Maybe the simpler ones get the simpler solution, but the fancier ones get single table inheritance or something like that. A little bit before we started recording the episode, we were talking about like, well, even the notification example, notifications can be complicated on their own and making a notifier class that's like, this is defines how all the deliveries happen for the blog post. It could be SMS or browser notifications, you know, push notifications or emails or whatever. And like codifying this state machine as an actual concept in your application, not just like some methods on your model, but maybe even having a thing that's like transition from here to here it can verify that you're actually in one of the pre-states that's required to do this type of transition. I feel like there's a lot of times where as Rails developers, like it's got to be a model or a controller or whatever. And people don't take enough time to remember that like, this is just Ruby and yeah. you can write any classes you want. And if a state machine is a critical piece of knowledge you need to understand in the app, make a class or a module that expresses all of that. And it could be just that. And it can know that we need to operate on a subscription and charges and customers or whatever else it is. The tendency for these have been like, it's tied to a model. The model has the state column and that's what we operate on, which yeah. is limiting, I think. I definitely agree with that. I think for a while, I think Rails community has kind of gone through phases of, of what is the generally accepted practice. 
So we went from like fat controller to, and skinny model to skinny controller and fat model. And then everybody was putting all their logic and service classes. And then, and like now, I guess I don't know what the soup du jour is at the moment, but like if you've got a complicated transition of state between like that involves multiple models and like that is a core piece of your business functionality. Yeah. Maybe encapsulate that into a service class. That's like you've instantiating call from a state machine transition and, and, and treat it that way. I think all of these things are tools that help you reason about the code, right? They're supposed to communicate intent to you. And so the reason that I like a state machine is because it helps communicate to me what's happening inside the app. Like that's the thing you want to optimize for, right? The computer can do all of this stuff really quickly, no matter which way <laughs> you write it, right? Like it's about who's going to look at it in the future and understand it and be able to modify it or edit it and maintain it. Yeah, because state machine kind of does is rather than I've got a subscription or something and it has all of these methods available all of the time, but there are guard clauses inside of them. You could make it not respond to cancel if the subscription is still pending. Cancel could just only be a thing at that time. And then you can inspect the objects and be like, well, there is no cancel method on the subscription. And it's like, yeah, because the subscription is not active. So you couldn't cancel it or it's already canceled. So why would we even give you the ability to try to cancel it? canceled subscription. And yeah. have you guys ever seen the Gilded Rose Kata? I think James, what's his name? James Edward Gray II. I always remember Jeg2 as his like yeah. username. His solution for that was basically including modules on instances of the class. And so it was like each one of them could define things that they were capable of. They're all cheeses or whatever it's operating on. And normally every cheese would have every method and maybe some of them would return true or false or like have a, you know, a guard at the beginning. But the way he had implemented it was like this one, we create the cheese and then we include these features on just this one piece of cheese, not like the whole thing in general. And I was like, whoa, that's mind blowing. And that is we don't, I don't think we normally have even realized like Ruby's capable of that. Like we always write instance methods as sort of like the way we do it. But like, you can make those as modules you include when the class is instantiated. You check the state and then you include these modules to add features like cancel only if the state was active or something. And I was like, mind blown. That is very interesting. I might have to look at that. I'll send I've that seen... to you. I'll put that in the notes too. Because yeah, I... think about that on the regular because I'm like, I didn't even realize you could be that fluid and like flexible in, in Ruby. Did you ever see, he had two talks that one was 10 things you didn't know Rails could do. And then one was like 10 things you didn't know Ruby could do. But one ended up being like 42 things and the other one ended up being like 100 things. Those are my two favorite talks of his. They're so good. They're fast too. Like he covers so much ground so quickly and you're just like, I feel like I've seen those, but so long ago that I really, really yeah, need fair. to rewatch them. So yeah, yeah that, that sounds right up my alley. You got to find the source code for this, but isn't it weird that we can use Ruby every day for yeah. 10 plus years and you're still like, I didn't know we could do this or think about problems in this way. And even just like, yeah, what if this method is only defined on objects in a certain state? Makes a lot of sense. You know, yeah. especially yeah. for like a, what transitions are available. 
And it's kind of the duct typingness of Ruby in general, where it's like, well, if you give us an object, we can make sure that if it looks like a duck and has a quack method, then like we don't care what it is or anything. And it kind of fits that same philosophy. So it's wild to be like, there's so many different ways we've never even imagined how to solve these problems yet. It feels like we should know these things by now, but we're still like discovering new things constantly. And we're still getting new things. Like there's still so much to discover in what we already have, but we're still getting new language features and new cool stuff every year. And it's, I think the best decision of my career was learning Ruby. Like it's, it's such a good language for me, at least for my brain, for how it works. And the community is so good. Like you said, there's so much to learn and so much like it's nice to find new ways to get to use Ruby, right? Like, Because I guess with other languages, you're kind of a lot stricter on what syntax is available and stuff. But with Ruby, it's like so flexible mm-hmm. to a point where it can become debilitating almost where you're like, I don't know how I want to solve this problem because I have took a few stabs at it and I know that I can do better. And yeah. I don't want to ship this like version that I've currently got, even though it's functional, it's not as pretty as I can imagine it could be. A fun little example is this past week, one evening, I was like, I had this idea that in your active record models, you have your associations and you can pass parameters to that and customize whatever on your associations. In the notice gem that I've been working on, we have like, deliver this notification by email. And then you've got to tell it what email class do you want to use? The user mailer? Okay. Do you want to send, what method do we call on it? The new comment method. And then we need to pass in arguments or parameters. And it's defining sort of all this on one long line of options. One of the things was like to make stuff dynamic, you can give it a symbol as a value and we'll call the method with that same name if it exists. And that's fine, but if you have a bunch of those notifications, you end up with a bunch of methods that are defined on the class that everybody can access. And it just kind of isn't organized very well. And I was like, you know, it'd be interesting is if we could just give it a block and you could just say do config and then config define like mailer and method name and the arguments or whatever. And it was literally two lines of code to add that feature. So now you can, instead of doing a whole bunch of options and a hash, you can just do a config block. And the only thing I had to change was like, we check if a block was given to the method and then we yield a hash to it and you can add keys to the hash and voila, you're done. And I was like, no way. There's no way this is that simple. And I can change the entire ergonomics of how you like organize these configuration things with two lines of code, like mind blowing. And I've been amazed because of like Ruby's ability to do that with DSLs. And I guess two, the thing that you don't realize is the optional parentheses or the methods that can end with an exclamation or question mark add so much to the language. They're tiny, but they add a ridiculous amount because the things read so much better that way. Yeah, it's all of these little tiny touches in the language that they all add up. And like, I I remember when it was probably from Ruby 1 to Ruby 2, when we got the like stabby lambda syntax for Mm -hmm. blocks or procs or whatever. And then we also got the hash syntax where instead of doing the equal arrow, you got the... 
Yeah, the fat arrow thing. Yeah. Instead yeah. of doing that, you could do just like the symbol colon and it would like interpolate the right thing as being a symbol. And that was like, I remember when that happened and it caused a little bit of like, it's a bit of a kerfuffle because like you have, if you want that to be a string or some something right. other than a symbol, like you still have to use the old syntax, but like, it's so nice. It's just this like little tiny nicety that just like, it improves your day and like, it's like Marie Kondo, right? It sparks joy every yes, time. I think, yes. Every time I yeah, I very fondly remember that. And then it also hated it because, you know, if you write a gem, then mm-hmm. you have to use the old syntax because you're probably going to support people still right. on 1.9 because it's brand new. And it's like, I just want to use the new nice features because I know how clean this code can read, but I can't yeah. use it, which is like drives me nuts. Yeah, I remember the community. It was kind of like, this is awesome, but we hate it because we can't use it yet. We haven't, enough people haven't converted over yet. And it was like, yeah, that's an interesting problem. What I wonder is why don't other languages like JavaScript could adopt optional parentheses or exclamations or, you know, question marks at the end of method names and no other languages like even bother to try that. It seems strange that they don't care. It's a good question. I don't know. I mean, maybe the people, the developers developing in those languages don't consider those things to be like necessary. Maybe because they've never experienced it or something. Maybe like because they've never experienced it. They've, yeah. yeah. I've always wondered that because I'm like, these tiny little parser changes could make, mm-hmm. you know, for some very much more elegant JavaScript code instead of having every method is active. And you could just say active question mark. To me, worth changing JavaScript to support that. (laughs) It's funny because when I look at JavaScript code and I see something that's like is active, there's a part of my brain that like glitches for a second. (laughs) Oh yeah, me too. Every time. It's funny because it's like you could just make a small tweak to the language and all that could go away. But I don't know. I imagine for JavaScript. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just a small tweak. Imagine for JavaScript, though, it's probably got to be much more difficult because, like, you got to deal with all the browser compatibility. Yeah. Right. I mean, I guess now it's different because you could just, like, transpile to. Right. It's one of those where it's like to get built into the browser for adoption, going to take a lot of time to ship all that. But it's also, like, not a breaking change that they could totally add as a new feature or something. But, and I guess they kind of did the question mark dot like the safe navigation stuff, which maybe they just picked the wrong character for that one. I don't know. (laughs) Reminds me a little bit of one of the things that I'm like waiting for is for Chrome to support grid level two. I forgot. What is the details on that? I forget. I remember reading about it. Okay. So CSS grid is like just like the standard grid. Grid level two is like sub grid, I think is what they call it. But it's like you place a grid inside of another grid and you tell it to accept a grid stops for the parent grid. So it means that you can take the inner grid and have it conform to the spacing of the outer grid. Oh, that's so interesting. It, it is useful for like, a, it's useful for a bunch of, of different types of things. The problem is, is that the only browser that supports it currently is Firefox. Oh no, wait, actually, I think, I think Safari supports it as of the latest Safari release. Oh, wow. Safari's um, usually a little little behind on some of those things. But. Yeah. But Chrome is like, I have no idea when it's going to ship in Chrome. Like it's been 
years and years and years. From what I understand, it's like waiting a refactor of the rendering engine or something. Oh, joy. I'm sure that's easy. (laughs) (laughs) Like they're literally building almost an operating system, you know, in these these browsers. It's kind of nuts. It is. It's like a whole other. Yeah. I always think back to like, there's a talk from some GitHub developers that were, I think, designers, but they're, you know, front end developers working on the diff screen and trying to just display a diff with red and green highlighted code. And they were like, basically the talk was them reading the internals of the Chromium engine because they were like, well, if you've got million lines of code in a diff and you're trying to display all that, uh, you can't put like a span around every single character or whatever that you're trying to highlight. And if we do classes, that's very inefficient. IDs are faster, but if we use a tag like the I tag that nobody is using or we're not using anywhere else, then like that's the most efficient. And they're like, we're basically just trying to style some HTML and then ended up like in the internals of WebKit or whatever, trying to understand how to efficiently write CSS that would render like a giant page. And I was like, that sounds like quite the rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. That's got to be incredibly challenging. Like when when you get to the point where the thing you want to render, you have to like go and look at how browsers at the source code for browsers and how they are doing. It's like if you're doing something in Ruby and it's seg faults and you end up in Ruby's C source code trying to debug what you're doing. You're so far in the weeds that (laughs) most people probably would stop and just like, all right, let's change what we're doing instead. Yeah. Do you have any more hot takes on state machines to drop? (laughs) No, just that people should use them. I mean, I think think they're vastly underutilized. That's what I will say. I definitely agree with that. Even just if you are trying to wrap your head around how something works, Stripe subscriptions show their flow of statuses Mm -hmm. and states and stuff. Just draw out what you're trying to do on paper in state machine or like a flow diagram format. You will really understand the problem way better than trying to read the the sloppy code that tries to replicate that without really defining the state machine. It can be a pretty good eye opener because then you might realize like got like a bunch of guards don't make any sense because we're trying to protect from using the wrong state to call this thing, and it's like. We just flip that and do ensure that it's in these states before we do this stuff, then you know, you might realize that there's a bunch of code you could reorganize, throw away, whatever. It seems like a very good thing that, you know, I don't remember if in computer science we like I know we did algorithms and stuff, but I don't know if we spend a ton of time on state machines or not in, in I, school. I don't remember spending a lot of time on state machines in school. So the place where I really learned about state machines was doing the consumer electronics, like embedded programming, because like everything you're doing in there is a state and the state transition happens based on like a button press or a sensor input or something. But it's just sort of funny because I feel like no matter what industry you go into or where you go, like programming is kind of the same. It's the same tools, the same ideas, the same concepts applied to different constraints. So I don't remember learning about them in school, but I feel like most of what I know now, I, I learned after graduating and I learned by actually doing so. Yeah, we had a couple electrical engineering classes that were required in our CS degree. And I remember like 
we designed a CPU, like a tiny little CPU from scratch kind of thing. And it was like, it was actually really fun because similar to the state machine, you're kind of working in that mindset. Then also the cool thing was like, okay, you're sending these eight bits of binary in to these eight slots. And then they showed us the like jump from there to assembly, which is like, it's just a little word that represents these bits. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And then they showed us too, like going from assembly to C. And it was like, oh, C is just like a little abstraction over the assembly. Like I can convert the C call into the exact same binary or whatever. I don't remember most of what we did back then, but it was like, what? It's just little abstractions over layer over layer. And then at some point, you don't have to think about any of it, even memory allocation, because you write Ruby. So like, wonderful. But going back down the stack a bit, like grab one of those kids electronics projects (laughs) and like do some of that because you'll probably end up learning state machines or whatever in those projects. Who knows? I think there was something you said that that is maybe a good starting point. If you have a thing where you've got a state column and you've just got a bunch of guard clauses, I like what you said about just draw it out. That is a very good first step. That'll give you a clear sign of where maybe some pitfalls are. And it'll actually help you if you choose one of these state machine gems or if you choose to go the STI route or something. It'll probably help you to make sure that you got everything sorted out so you can make that transition a lot easier. Yeah, I'm remembering that maybe in our algorithms and data structures class, we had to model a like a vending machine. And it was basically like, you selected A1 and it's a dollar. So the state machine is, we start with the state of zero and they put in a nickel and we go to five and then we go to whatever. And then eventually the transition opens up that's like, you put in a dollar or more so we can go actually execute the thing. But until then you're stuck in a loop of waiting for more money to be inserted because we cannot give you the thing. But we also have the eject button to like refund you all the money and go back to zero. But then it's like you open up that state transition to like, okay, now we can give you the item that you purchased, but it goes into another thing, which is like, if we subtract the dollar from the amount in the machine, maybe you put in a $20 bill. So we need to dispense however many quarters or something in, in <laughs> afterwards. And it's like, it was just a tiny little example that kind of got you to think about like, this is a state machine, a simple one but one that you interact with all the time and you can really understand it completely. And it's trivial, but yet shows you quite a few of those things. Cause somebody could put in a hundred pennies or a $1 coin or $5 and you get kind of all those different options to see like there's loops if they put in less they just keep mm-hmm. it in this loop until this thing's available and so on. So I think that's kind of a very common first introduction to state machines, but you can probably Google that and find a good tutorial on that or something. Yeah. I had a friend who asked me a little bit ago about state machines. And one, I think that that's a great example because what you're talking about is you're sitting there waiting in a loop. And the question that I got was like, what is the difference between like something happening within the system and something happening from a user? Yeah, And I was like, well, there is no difference, right? Like the difference is like something happens, it triggers a thing that transitions the state. That thing could be the user presses a button or we get another coin or whatever. But I like that example because it's sort of 
it treats it like you're still sitting in a loop just waiting for the user to give you another quarter. And that's the same as sitting in a loop waiting for API call to come back or something. Yeah. And that's how video games work. They're just like an infinite loop and they're like, draw whatever screen and we just keep updating it. But it is funny to think about that because it's like, yeah, the web server is just waiting for a request, but we never even like as Rails developers, like we never, ever touch that. We're just like, here's a request and we just handle the event happened and we go do that. And we like are just one leg of that loop or whatever, which is interesting. I've never thought about it that way, but that is kind of how it is. Like that's, yeah. Yeah. It like breaks the problem down where you're not, you're no longer responsible for the, the loop. You're just doing the job of input and output. And we just take whatever you gave us and, and give you whatever you expect back. And it's not our responsibility for the, the outer loop. That's Nate Berkopec's job on Puma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, nice. We're running up against time here, but before we wrap up first, Really glad that you came on today and hung out with us. Well, yeah. Thank you for uh, being on the Ruby on Rails podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Where can people find you online? So I'm off most social media, but I do have a website. So you can find me at EliseSchaefer.com. You can obviously find me on the Ruby on Rails podcast, and that is at the Ruby on Rails podcast.com. I mean, in terms of social media, the only one that I really still have is LinkedIn. I also have Strava cycling and stuff. So if you're a cyclist, you can find my Strava. My Strava is linked on my website, but I'll include it for the show notes too. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun. We will have more conversations in person at RubyConf. So I'm looking forward to that. We will talk soon. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an amazing conversation. So I appreciate it. And I look forward to chatting in person in a couple of weeks. Yeah, thanks for having us on your podcast. (laughs) You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.